This is episode number 114, How to Train for Altitude with Dr. Stephen Chung. Welcome to the Sonia Looney Show. This is a podcast about how to live a high-performance life, spanning the categories of mindset, plant-based nutrition, and inspiring stories to help you be better every day. The big question really comes in, do I go as a commando mission? Do I just go the day before or the couple of days before and compete and then get the heck out? And uh, before I really suffer from the altitude and just try to do my best from that short-term exposure? Or do I really try to do a siege mentality of I'm gonna go up to altitude, I'm gonna stay there at Leadville for two weeks beforehand and really try to get as adapted as possible. I hope your day is going well and I'm super excited that you're hanging out with me today. And I think you're gonna really enjoy today's episode. So if you're an endurance athlete, you've probably thought about altitude. And I did an episode a few weeks ago, episode 110, The Ultimate Guide to Stage Racing, where people submitted questions. And one of the questions people ask me about is training and racing at altitude. And I grew up in Albuquerque, New Mexico, and lived in Colorado for my 20s. And I've always lived at 5,000 feet or above until now when I moved to Canada. So I never really thought about altitude training until I did the highest mountain bike race in the world in 2011. I was still living in Colorado, but the race was a 10 day race called the Yak Attack in Nepal. And the race tops out at 17,769 feet. That's right, 17,769 feet. I think that's somewhere around 5,400 meters. And at that time, I admit that I still wasn't fully acquainted with the data and the science around training at altitude, but I did know how dangerous the symptoms of acute mountain sickness or altitude sickness could be. And my primary fear for tackling this race was I just wanted to be the first woman to finish, but I was terrified of getting altitude sickness because it doesn't matter how fit you are, how many times you've been at altitude, it could strike you at any time. Previous to this experience, the high point I had been at was in Colorado, one of the 14ers, so around 14,000 feet. So there's a lot of unknowns that happen when you're going to altitude. If you want to learn more about my experience racing the Yak Attack in Nepal and being the first woman to ever finish this race, you can watch my TED Talk, which is in the show notes, or you can just Google Sonia Looney TED Talk. So I started spending time in BC in 2013, and BC isn't at high altitude. That's British Columbia and Canada. And I eventually moved in 2014. And what that meant was I was also moving from living at altitude my entire life to living at 1,000 feet where I currently live. And I also spent a lot of time on the coast, which is around zero feet. So racing in Colorado became a problem and I could only race in third gear. So when I'd travel back to race, I would feel terrible in races. I would feel like blacking out. And I never really understood why people would complain about coming to race in Colorado or Utah at altitude. And now I get it. And it was really frustrating. (laughs) So I took it upon myself to learn as much as I could about prepping for altitude. And I used myself as a guinea pig in some hypoxic experiments. 
since moving to Canada a couple years ago, I also raced a stage race in Colombia called La Leyenda del Dorado, and that's between 10 to 14,000 feet as well. So I've gone back to altitude and race since moving down low, but I've never really been the same athlete at altitude that I once was when I lived at altitude. And those attempts were only moderately successful in terms of how I felt. Despite the experiments I did on myself and the reading I had done, I still couldn't really answer the question if you can train specifically for altitude. If you're an avid listener of this podcast, then you might have heard of my heat training series I did with Dr. Stephen Chung in one episode and also with Luke Wayne and Stacey Shand in a follow-up episode. But today I got to sit down with Dr. Chung for a second time, and this time we talked all about altitude. Dr. Chung is not only one of the world's top authorities on environmental physiology, but he's also an avid cyclist himself. He does racing. He actually does a lot of different things. But if you really want to geek out, get his textbook. It's called Advanced Environmental Physiology. I bought this book after the heat training episode that we did. And it's a textbook, but you can really learn a lot of things from it. And there is an entire chapter on altitude. Actually, I think there's two chapters on altitude. Dr. Chung is a professor at Brock University in the Department of Kinesiology, and he is also the author of a few other books, Cutting Edge Cycling and Cycling Science. And if that doesn't keep him busy enough, he is the sports science and training editor for PezCyclingNews.com and has his own column. In this episode, you'll learn what happens to your body at altitude, if there is an ideal time to get to an event beforehand, the efficacy of altitude tents if there is any data behind hypoxic training, and what the best configuration for ideal training is in terms of sleeping high and training low. And we also talk about how to pace properly at altitude if you're not from altitude. I want to give a quick shout out to Kuat Racks, our podcast sponsor. Kuat Racks makes some of the most innovative and easy to use mountain bike, road bike, and also outdoor equipment racks on the market. And if you're into e-biking, they also make racks that will hold an e-bike. And for those of you who haven't ever seen an e-bike, they're quite a bit heavier. So the rack has to have a slightly different design. They have an awesome small business feel, even though they actually are quite a big business. And I've met the owners. I've talked to them. They're a really fun company. And if you want to support them, go to kuatracks.com, K-U-A-T-Racks.com. If you're enjoying the show, don't forget to hit the subscribe button. That way you get notifications. I've also started sending out a weekly email about the two episodes per week. So if you prefer to get notified via email, go to sonyalooney.com newsletter and sign up. I also occasionally will send out an email with an article that I've written or some information about how a race went down and the things that I learned and experienced in a race. So if you want to sign up, go to sonyalooney.com newsletter. One last announcement, Moxie and Grit has some new socks that are coming out very soon. You can pre-order them and they are in production right now. So there's three new ones. Go to moxieandgrit.com. And also I have cycling kits that are gonna be coming out. It's my very first cycling kit for sale. I've been designing my own custom cycling kits for my racing and for myself for the last five years, but they've never been available. So this will be really similar to my race kit but it's gonna be a Moxie and Grit branded kit. So go to moxieandgrit.com, M-O-X-Y and grit.com if you wanna check them out. I'm off to Squamish this week. There is a race called the Spockwest, which is a two day mountain bike race in Squamish, riding all the fun trails. And I did this race for the first time last year 
And it's pretty cool because it's super competitive. There's some really amazing and fast women at this race and the technical riding is really fun. So I'm really excited about it. It's something that I've been looking forward to all year and that is this weekend. All right, so let's get into Altitude with Dr. Stephen Chung. Welcome back to the show, Dr. Chung. Thanks for having me back, Sonia. A little bit of a, a different uh, state today. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, summer here in Kelowna, first of all. And then second of all, I'm just in time for being summertime weather, I'm also not that mobile since I had a pretty bad rock climbing accident a couple of weeks ago. And as a result, broke my foot and I'm on crutches for the next uh, four to six weeks. Oh, that's such a bummer. <laughs> yeah. Everyone listening can definitely relate with having injuries, but it's really frustrating. Yeah, it is. I try to look on the bright side. It's hard. Mentally, it is a challenge. And there's been a couple of times the last couple of weeks where I was in a bad mental state. But even right after the accident, I just realized how fortunate I am that all I had was a broken foot because it was about a three to five meter unsupported fall onto a rock ledge. And I kept bouncing downwards from there. So it really could have been much, much worse. So I'm pretty thankful for that. And the other good thing is, you know, my university, Brock, is finally able to get some work out of me because I'm not able to go out and about and play all the time now. What did you do when you were in those dark mental spaces about your injury? I stewed a lot and I chatted with friends. Uh, first thing was I did reach out to trusted friends and I was able to open up and say, hey, you know, like, I'm not too proud to say that. I'm close to mentally cracking and allowed me to at least talk it through rather than just kind of holding it all in and saying, oh, yeah, no, it's just I can handle it. And so a lot of it was just that process of being able to chat about it, both with my wife and with trusted friends about things I was going through of one and even just little things that sparked me off. And I've never really appreciated the whole idea of PTSD or trigger words or thoughts before, but I think about a week in last week or so, I was going up to bed and my wife had washed all the laundry and folded and I saw just this little glimpse of the shirt that I always wear for rock climbing and just seeing that little glimpse of it and it was right before bed and literally for about the next hour I'm just lying in bed and all I can envision and see in my head was me hanging onto the rock about to fall and so it's amazing what the mind does both for good and for bad and yeah that was probably my scariest moment and I'm thinking of having a big burning party for that shirt. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good way to get rid of it. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's a good way to put things to bed, literally, right? And so, yeah, when we get home, I'll probably uh, light a little bonfire in the backyard. <laughs> so I'm pretty excited to talk about altitude training today. The last time we had you on the show, we talked about heat training, and I found that really helpful. And I know that a lot of the listeners did. And you're such an expert across so many different environmental physiology like research. And altitude is kind of one of those things where people don't really know what is the right thing to do. So 
I did a podcast recently about stage racing. So I think we'll start talking about stage racing to start. And there's a lot of stage races that are at altitude. And namely, the main one people were asking me about is the Breck Epic. And for those of you not familiar with Breck Epic, it's a seven day or might be six days now, but it's a six or seven day mountain bike stage race in Breckenridge, Colorado that goes between 10 and I think at the max elevations around 13,000 feet. But you stay in Breckenridge at 10,000 feet. And I've raced it a couple of times, but I haven't gone back since I moved to sea level. And most of the time people going to these races or people doing races in like Leadville or just different races in the Southwest tend to be at altitude. So what's a good place to start for people who are thinking to themselves like, okay, this is at altitude, like should I even go or how do I even start training for this? Yeah, actually, this is going to be really interesting as a topic because most of the time we, both as scientists and both as athletes, we talk about altitude as, you know, you always hear cyclists, endurance athletes go for altitude training camps and then, but it's really to perform at sea level. So, and there's a whole reason for that, that we're not necessarily going to dig into in this episode, but the concept of, you know, preparing to compete at altitude is quite different and it's not nearly as talked about as much. So I'm really happy to dig into it. And I think the first thing is to really understand what we mean in terms of terminology is to define different altitudes. So as kind of scientists and sports scientists, we generally categorize anything from sea level to 500 meters as sea level, really. You're not going to see any changes, any impairment at all. From about 500 meters to 2,000 meters, we term that mild or low altitude. And you're going to start seeing, depending on your individual variability, you're going to start seeing some impairment. Two to 3,000, it's generally called moderate altitude. So that's kind of the idea you're talking about at Breckenridge and in those kind of races and in Leadville. And then from there, we have high altitude, roughly about 3,000 to 5,000 meters. And then up above 5,000 meters is your Everest types, is your extreme altitude. And there's a whole different range of physiology and physiological challenges in that realm. So what we're probably gonna mostly focus on today is kind of the mild to moderate type of altitude. So maybe about anywhere from, let's say a thousand meters up to about 3000 meters, maybe a little bit beyond there. So the challenge with studying those is, again, most of the time we extrapolate the research based on the first part of an altitude training camp because most of the time athletes are going up there for altitude training camps and then they're coming down. So we can glean a lot of information from how they progress during those first few days when they go up to altitude. So there's a few major physiological changes. So let's talk about what altitude really is first of all. What it is is that you don't have as much air. It's not because there is less percentage of oxygen in the air, but there is less atmospheric pressure. So as a result, every single breath you take has fewer oxygen molecules. So it's when you say the air is thinner, it's really because the air is less dense. And so therefore, again, every breath that you take, there is less oxygen. That's the very pragmatic thing about what happens. And it's really that stimulus that forces your body to adapt in many ways. 
So because of that, because we're talking about mostly endurance sports, we know that oxygen is key. Your aerobic capacity is key. The ability for your lungs to get in oxygen, for it to get into your blood, and for it to transport into your your muscles. And if there's less oxygen outside, it simply is harder for your body to process and get that to your muscles. So the very first thing that happens is you respond by hyperventilating. You notice that there's less air, so your body's response is, well, I'm going to breathe more, both deeper and also a little bit more frequently to try to bring in more oxygen. So that, again, is called hyperventilation. And so that is a very natural response over about the first two to three days of exposure. And again, your body is trying to process and bring in more oxygen. Your body doesn't have time. It's too short to start building up more red blood cells, which is what happens later. So we'll first talk about just what happens acutely, and then we can see what happens if you decide to spend a few weeks up at altitude and preparing for your your race. So again, the main thing is this hyperventilatory response causes you to both feel very short of breath because you're constantly breathing harder, and it also results in, at first, less oxygen getting to your blood, so you can't go as hard. So that's the very first acute response that you're going to notice. So you're going to fatigue a lot faster. You're not going to be able to ride at the same wattage or run at the same pace right away. So don't expect that. And also you're going to feel more uncomfortable because you're going to be feeling constantly out of breath. And also um, in terms of metabolism, in my experience, you get dehydrated easier. Is it because you're breathing like it's so dry, you're exhaling more water? Is that why? Yes, there's two reasons. One is that uh, the air is typically colder and also drier. So from both factors, you're going to have to warm up and humidify that air. And then you are losing most of that heat and water out to the environment. So there's a lot more of this respiratory heat loss. So also, if you are tend to be asthmatic, if you tend to have bronchoconstriction, altitude and that enhanced hyperventilation might also be a trigger. So you may want to be ready for that. Even if you normally may not have to take puffers, you might need to use that as prophylactic and know that it might be an issue just because your throats can be more irritated, it's going to be drier. And then the second is need for more carbohydrates during endurance exercise. And I don't remember where I read that or where I heard that, but that's just been something I've carried with me. Am I right? <laughs> or uh... Yeah, in general, you're, you're very correct because, again, your body isn't getting as much oxygen initially. And it will improve long term, but in the acute phase, you're not getting as much oxygen, so therefore your aerobic capacity is less. So let's say your normal threshold power is 250 watts. Well, you know, that may drop down to about anywhere from you know, 220, 210, anything. It, it really varies, but it's going to drop. So that means if you try to do a ride, you get up to altitude and first thing you do, well, I got to make up for lost time. I've traveled yesterday. I'm going to just go right into my training and I'm going to hit 250 watts that I know I can do at sea level. 
guess what? That is going to be above your aerobic anaerobic threshold, and you're going to rely more on carbohydrates. You're going to fatigue faster, and so therefore you might need more fueling. You might need more carbohydrates to compensate. Okay, so say somebody is planning for their race, and in say it's in August because there's a lot of altitude races in August. What's a good protocol to get started? Like, what, what's the first thing they should look at, and what are the steps that they should take to get ready? It's really challenging to get ready for it in the sense that unless you really know how you respond, you're not really going to know what you're dealing with. There is a huge amount of variability in how you or I may respond to a high altitude stress. And you know, for example, if you were born and raised in Colombia up at high altitude, you're probably going to be able to handle it a lot better than someone who was born and raised at sea level. There's been interesting research looking at high altitude Sherpas and kind of also Sherpas who were moved down to lower levels several generations ago and showing that you know, their adaptation isn't nearly the same as the people who were born and raised at high altitude, even though the genetics are pretty much similar. So it's really hard even just to generalize across how people are going to respond. We know the hyperventilation is going to happen. We know the potential for lower aerobic capacity. All of that is going to happen. We don't know the magnitude and it's really hard to be at sea level and predict how you or I are going to respond without actually being in those environments. So if you've ever had the chance to compete at altitude or to even just be at altitude and know how you were before, that might be a good clue. So if you know that you have a throbbing headache starting anytime you're above 7,000 feet, well, that gives you a basis. I may not have that response at all. It may only happen at 10,000 feet and above. So unfortunately, it's really hard to predict how any individual is going to respond besides the broad generalities. Here's the probability of what's going to happen. But beyond that, it's impossible to predict an individual. So that's a big challenge. It's not like in the heat where we know everybody's going to respond in a certain way, you know, there's this really finer shades of response. Here it can be really from almost no impairment to really, really strong impairment. So again, first clue is look back at any of your trips. If you've ever competed, if you've ever even just traveled to a high altitude place, try to figure out what the altitude is and try to figure out, just try to remember how I felt in those situations. And that might give you a clue. The second thing then is probably the really critical thing is, okay, if I have Leadville coming up, if I have Breckenridge coming up and I know it's going to be at whatever feet, the big question is, what can I do about it? Can I prepare for it at home? Not really again, because it's not like heat. Most of us don't have access to, you know, hypoxic chamber. I have one in my lab, but most people don't have that. And it's very hard to replicate. There are altitude tents that you can sleep in, but it's really hard to exercise in them. So most of the actual facilities that you can actually try to have hypoxia in your system at sea level is really in a specialized lab for you to actually exercise in it. So that's a big challenge. The big question really comes in, do I kind of 
go as a commando mission? Do I just go the day before or the couple of days before and kind of compete and then get the heck out? And uh, before I really, you know, kind of suffer from the altitude and just try to do my best from that short-term exposure? Or do I really try to kind of do a siege mentality of I'm going to go up to altitude I'm going to stay there at Leadville for you know two weeks beforehand and really try to get as adapted as possible. Obviously, if you have the finances and the logistics, you can do that. That's probably the best situation. So you probably still need about two weeks to get close to full adaptation to that altitude. So it's going for three, four days probably isn't going to do too much for you besides just getting a feel for how things are going to be. But in terms of your physiological response, you're not really going to get too much out of it. So that's probably really the thing you can do is look back on any trips you've taken, get a sense of whether you can do anything or how you respond, and then really decide, do I want to just go quickly and uh, not really have the sleepless nights, for example, that I may have from the first week of being at altitude and just go for a couple of weeks or a couple of days at most beforehand, compete and then go home? Or do I really try to take my lumps and go and stay as long as possible? Yeah, and I think that the two-week thing is interesting because as you mentioned, everybody is really different. I am an altitude native. I grew up at altitude but now I lived at a thousand feet for quite some time. And I tried going to do this race called the Gunnison Growler, which is like at 7,000 feet. And this was several years ago. And I went and I stayed in Boulder for two weeks before. And during the race, I had to like pull over and stop because I felt like I was going to black out during the race. So for me, and then I did some blood tests when I came home and I had no like change in my red blood cell count. And granted, after the race, there might have been some red blood cell death from <laughs> the exercise that I was doing. But I guess it's really, that's also really individual, like knowing how long you need to go beforehand to start seeing a positive change. Yeah, absolutely. And in the field of altitude training research, there's a whole range of responders and non-responders. And there's still some controversy about whether those responders or non-responders really exist. I do think that they exist. And one of the classic studies is from Levine and Stray Gunderson, Ben Levine, and uh, his group, and that was the classic paper in 1997 that looked at the whole live high, train low philosophy of training to show that it was really effective. And everyone cites that article as a you know, really classic paper showing that live high, train low, super effective. But the interesting thing is most people don't really cite the paper that came out from that same group in 1998, the year after, by Bob Chapman. And what they showed was there were clearly responders and non-responders within that group that they didn't talk about in the original study. And there was almost 50-50 split. So again, it shows the huge variety in individual responses and that it's really hard. They couldn't really predict. They were all collegiate varsity runners in that group. And yet, and they were, I believe... I can't recall. I believe they were actually from Utah, the cohort. And so pretty high altitude in some places already, but again, huge variety in responses. So it's really, really challenging to predict. 
there's also controversy about what long-term altitude training does for you. Does it really produce more red blood cells? And that's the classic theory of why people go. But again, there are just as many studies showing no responses as showing responses. So even in scientific literature, it's not really clear exactly what is the best kind of altitude training protocol and whether there is one that really works for everybody. So that's why even if you are using a hypoxic tent to sleep in, it really comes down to testing it out, trial and error on yourself to see what is the highest level in terms of altitude or low oxygen that you can handle without losing sleep over it, literally, in terms of not having a lot of headaches the next day or even while you're sleeping and waking up in the middle of the night, those kind of things. So, so much of it is really trial and error in this field. You know, there is no clear scientific template. So it sounds like um, someone like me who seems to be a non-responder, even though I'm from altitude originally, you mentioned going the day before or like immediately before. Why is that better? Is it because your body hasn't started trying to make metabolic shifts other than hyperventilation so you don't feel as bad from it? That's part of it. And I think the other big part of it is just the potential for poor sleep quality. If you are really uncomfortable and you're just not able to sleep and you're just more fatigued and there is that residual fatigue that you have over that first part, both from training fatigue and also from poor sleep quality, that would probably be the biggest initial challenge. So the things you can do, again, is to recognize whether it's going to be a challenge for you to sleep or not. If you are competing at 7,000 feet, but you know historically you can sleep well there, well, then, you know, going for a few days probably isn't going to impair your performance because you know you're still going to be able to rest and recover pretty well through sleep. But if you know any time I go above 7,000 feet, I can't sleep, I always wake up in the middle of the night, I'm coughing a lot, well, that's not really doing your health too much and not really preparing for your effort as well. I know the last kind of real experience I had with high altitude was actually going to Colorado Springs in October 2017 to, interestingly enough, go to the USOC for a altitude training workshop. And I decided to spend an extra day and go rent a bike and go ride around. And I immediately noticed that Wow, uh, any little effort just gassed me. Just uh, I couldn't climb a hill at all at any kind of hard pace. I had to really ramp it down, shift down to much, much lower gears. And, uh, you know, that was even at moderate, that was about six, 7,000 feet. So I know those symptoms for myself. So it really comes down to knowing your response and knowing first off and being comfortable with the fact that I'm not going to be able to do my peak performance at, at altitude. It's just simply not going to happen. So again, if you know your threshold power, you know at sea level you can pace this race at, let's say, 250 watts, again, average, just know and be comfortable with the fact that you can't do that. Even after a week or so of adaptation, you're still probably not going to be able to do that. So just be aware of that and pace appropriately. 
Yeah, definitely. The, the pacing thing. And also, if you blow up at sea level, sometimes you can recover if you go out too hard and blow up. But at altitude, you're probably not recovering if you go out too hard. So I think that respiratory frequency is a good thing to pay attention to since you will be breathing harder to gauge, okay, like how hard am I going? Mm-hmm. Because, yeah, like paying attention to your pacing as part of your race plan and also changing your expectations. And I think that's the hardest thing for people. It's actually one of the reasons people ask me, like, why don't you race at altitude anymore? And one of the, I mean, I do occasionally, but one of the reasons I don't is because I know that I'm going to go and I'm going to be riding in third gear. So to spend the money and the time and the energy to go and then only to race in third gear, sometimes it's worth it, but usually it's just not worth it for me. Yeah. So another modification, speaking of gears, is again, realize that if you can handle this climb normally in this kind of gearing, realize that you might need to change your gearing. You might need to change your cassette on your back uh, wheel to have easier bailout gears because realizing you might need to be spinning more and knowing that every single anaerobic effort in a sense is going to cost even more at altitude in terms of recovery. Another example was in 2012, I was with friends and we had a biking holiday in Bergamo in Italy and we ended up uh, climbing the Stelvio one day and that was right after the Tour of Italy that Ryder Hegedal won. And I remember in that race, you know, there was a big attack right near the end of the Stelvio climb. And so I was riding with my friends and I remember, oh, 500 meters to go, I'm going to do the same attack that Rodriguez did. And I flew for 100 meters and then I just imploded at the top. It was at about 2,700 meters and I just imploded like there was no tomorrow and I could barely stay upright afterwards, let alone just get to the finish. So my friend just passed me for dead after that. So, I mean, it's a real lesson that you have to pace appropriately. And I think that's probably the biggest thing to do in terms of preparing is alter your game plan, know it's going to change. And we may not know how much, but know and adapt and be and revise your plan beforehand and not have that ego of saying, oh, I know I can hammer just as hard as before and know that every effort is going to cost you more. Okay. So I think that we've, we've given some good takeaways for what happens when you get there. So making sure that you're hydrating appropriately, trying to learn your body. So, you know, if you should go as early as possible or knowing if you should go right beforehand. And like, if you're doing a race, it's, we'll just keep using Breck Epic and Leadville as easy examples. Like you could stay in Denver at 5,000 feet instead of going up to 10,000 feet, which at 5,000 feet, you're still going to feel the effects of altitude, but not nearly as bad as 10,000 feet. And then paying attention to your pacing and also realizing you might need more carbohydrates. So from a race action plan, when you get there and planning the immediate part before the race, that's something to keep in mind something else that we haven't mentioned is that if you do go two weeks beforehand, you're not going to be recovering as well because you're not going to have as much oxygen in your blood to begin with. So if you're going two weeks before, don't plan on getting any big training in because you're not going to be able to recover and don't show up super fatigued because you might not recover. Yeah, that's a great point to bring up. And that is the flip side of why you may not want to go for a week or two weeks beforehand, because you simply can't train as hard. So you may be physiologically adapting on the one hand, and that's a bonus, but your training stimulus is going lower and lower and lower because you simply can't go as hard when you're at altitude. So it's a real balancing act. So not only in terms of sleep quality, but your training is going to be as high quality up at altitude. So that's, again, 
the big balancing act that you have to kind of flip a coin on sometimes. And, and so if in doubt, I would probably err on the side of going there for less time. I wouldn't just bank everything on. I've never been at altitude before, but hey, I can afford it. I'm going to go for two weeks before and I'm just going to train there and train right through the race. That's probably not going to be the best use of both finances and your logistics and time to do that. I would probably take that first experience, know you're going probably going to have a suboptimal performance, but really use it as a learning experience at the same time as obviously doing your best, but use it as a learning experience for the future of, okay, this is how I respond and this is what I might need to do the next time. And then the question that everybody's asking is, or probably thinking right now is, okay, so I live at sea level or near sea level. What if I can get up to altitude and train for one weekend before the event or go to altitude for like a week and then come home and then several weeks later go to the event? Is there going to be a positive benefit to that person going and training at altitude other than maybe understanding where their threshold may lie at altitude? Or is there going to be any type of physiological benefit? If it's a really short term, by short term, I really mean anything less than two weeks, you're probably not going to get that much physiological adaptation. It also depends on how long the gap is between that kind of initial exposure and you're going back up to altitude. If it's six months in between, no, you're not going to have any residual benefit. If it is maybe, let's say you have a chance to go somewhere for two weeks beforehand and you come back and maybe a month later or at most two months later, you go back up for the actual event itself, then yeah, there may be some benefit in terms of that physiological adaptation, but it's like any training stimulus. So your body will adapt to whatever stress you impose on it. So if you just come back to sea level for two months or more, you're probably not going to have any residual effect. And, and this might be asking the same question just in a different way, but I'll just use where we live as an example. So we live around a thousand feet. What if I can go up every weekend to 5,000 feet to train? And I do that every single weekend until I leave for the event. That'd be like five days at home and then two days at altitude every week. Would there be a benefit or is it not worth my time? I would lean towards it not being worth your time. Again, from a physiological standpoint, because first off, you're training high and you're not going to have that great training stimulus. And even from just being there for two days and then you come down for five days and go up again, you're going to have so much of that stimulus go away. It's not enough to have a strong stimulus to begin with. And then you're coming back for five days. Any of that initial adaptation is going to be gone again. So you're going to get used to the discomfort of some of the things we've talked about. But that may help and that may be a big thing and that may be worthwhile more than any of the physiological adaptation. So I would, again, in an ideal setting, if there is any way you can get some kind of exposure to altitude, whether it's just exercising in it or even worst case, just being up at high altitude, just to see how you feel at different levels of elevation, that's probably a valuable thing, but don't rely on it changing your physiology. It's more just knowing what you can handle comfortably. And in terms of altitude tents, or maybe someone can like commute and drive up high and sleep high and then drive back down low and train and, and live during the day low. If they can sleep, is there going to be a physiological change if they can sleep high and train low? 
Yeah, absolutely. That whole live high, train low is probably the best of any of the modalities compared to the opposite of living low and just going up and training high. But to do it successfully, to sleep high, you really have to stay high as long as possible. And by how long, I mean, ideally 16 hours a day that you are up high and then you come back down and you train low. And that is the whole theory of live high, train low. You get the benefit of training in the best possible environment at sea level where there's the most oxygen. And then you go up and for the bulk of the day, you get that stress of adapting to low oxygen levels. So unless you can do that, it's not really worth your time. And again, even those studies show there's just as many responders as there are non-responders. So even if you can do that, it doesn't necessarily mean you're guaranteed to, to improve, unfortunately. Okay. And then what if somebody is just going for a vacation? Like an example would be Matt and I are going to meet our family in the San Juan Mountains in Southwest Colorado. And we're going to be flying from Vancouver to Durango, which Durango is around 7,000 feet, but we're the campground's at 10,000 feet. So are we at a risk from going from zero to 10,000 feet in 24 hours? Like, should we stay in Durango for the night just to help the body adapt a little bit? Again, that's where experience comes in. Classic symptoms of acute mountain sickness really only generally for most people start striking at about 11, 12,000 feet or higher. And one of the big predictors is rapid exposure to high altitude. So yes, if you have never experienced altitude before and you go from zero at sea level up to 10,000, 11, 12,000 feet immediately, uh, yeah, you're going to run at a higher risk of showing some symptoms of acute mountain sickness. So I would, if possible, yes, stay at 7,000 feet first and then uh, go up to 10,000 feet a day or two later. But again, it depends. If you've experienced it before that you've never had problems with that, going straight to 10,000 feet, then that's completely fine. But if you've never done it before, I would probably err on the side of safety and do a bit more gradual. We do know for sure with the extreme altitude literature that the biggest risk factor of people getting acute mountain sickness is rapid ascent to altitude. And studies have literally had people tested at sea level. And then in one group, they uh, you know basically took them up by helicopter right away. Another group made a much more gradual climb to the same altitude over two, three days. And lo and behold, the ones that were brought up by helicopter, they had a much greater risk. And there was no other real predictive factor between them, whether it's smoking or any other kind of respiratory variables. And if you are experiencing acute mountain sickness, you need to go down immediately. Like there's no hack. Like you just have to go down, period. Absolutely. Again, yeah, absolutely. is great that you brought that up. The very first and only first aid for any acute mountain sickness is descent, descent, descent. There is no other thing to do. Never, ever, if you experience really severe headaches, if you start coughing, if you have any of these classic symptoms of acute mountain sickness, don't think, oh, I'll just keep exercising or I'll just work through it. It will never kind of be a good scenario to keep 
at that altitude or go higher, even at extreme altitude and you know Everest expeditions, whatever. That is the absolute first rule. If you have any symptoms of acute mountain sickness, you go down. There is no if and or but about it. So I'm glad we brought that up. If anyone does have, and it's a difference between you know just a little bit of discomfort, mild headache. And, you know, even then I would be cautious, but if it is a really strong headache, and again, if you are coughing, if you are showing any of these symptoms, and we can set a link to some of these classic symptoms on the podcast, and yeah, any of those situations, don't risk it, descend, go down, you will never ever benefit yourself by staying there or going up even higher. And I have two more questions. One is about hypoxic training using something like a Spiro Tiger. And that's something that I have done. It came from like Dr. Andrew Sellers has been on the show and he had read some studies and it was probably from like World War One or World War Two, where these pilots and, and you'll have to correct me because I don't remember the exact details and these pilots would go up to altitude and then they'd be like passing out. So they would do some hypoxic training where they'd be breathing into a device, driving down their SpO2 or the systemic oxygen in your blood and doing it for like a five or 10 minute interval and doing that as like a workout so that they could adapt to altitude. So the protocol, I don't think we were doing it actually correctly, but the protocol that Matt and I were doing is using the Spiro Tiger and you guys, it's, it's basically this bag you breathe into and you pick the size of the bag based on what your lung capacity is. And then you can decide what frequency you want to breathe at. But we would be breathing into this bag and then we would be doing light exercise like step ups or, or body weight squats to make your body start using more oxygen, which would drive down your SpO2 and you'd be wearing a monitor on your finger and we would be doing it between 85 to 90% and do that for five to 10 minutes and doing that if you can every day. But it feels like your brain is getting shrink wrapped while that's happening. We did blood work and there was no change in our red blood cell count. But both of us have repeatedly done this and have repeatedly felt better at altitude during races. So I don't know if there's any empirical data to support or refute this, but what has been your experience with the data? There's been very little kind of strong data showing that this intermittent hypoxic training works from a physiological standpoint or a performance standpoint from, like you say, any changes in blood parameters or any real performance. So I would really chalk that up to your perception. And it's really that discomfort of not being able to get as much air in or having respiratory difficulties. We do know that in terms of respiratory training, that the drive to breathe is so primal that it is a fundamental urge. And if you feel you can't breathe, that triggers all sorts of of afferent feedback to your brain saying, I'm in trouble there. So the brain's going to respond by saying, well, don't go as hard, right? So the perception, I think, is probably the biggest benefit for those. Uh, Again, the science hasn't shown a real physiological change, certainly in terms of anything from the hypoxic ventilatory response to any blood parameters, and also very, very minimal at best improvement in performance. Another thing that I thought of is if you're doing respiratory training using a Spiro Tiger or using, I don't know what the other brands are, but other things like that, 
if you're doing that versus not respiratory training, you might be strengthening your respiratory system so that when you are at altitude, you're going to fatigue less whenever you have to breathe a lot faster for a longer extended period of time. Yeah, I think it's useful to try something like that. Obviously, make sure safety first. So don't just grab a paper bag and start breathing into it and doing squats. Whatever you do, do not take that message away from this podcast. But I think that respiratory distress is huge. And we do know in science that if you can't breathe or if you have respiratory restrictions, that is a huge, huge down regulator for exercise that just sends all sorts of signals to your brain to not work as hard because if we can't breathe, we can't live. So I think, again, probably one of the biggest benefits to this kind of respiratory intermittent hypoxic training is that it does prepare you for this respiratory discomfort so that you're a bit more habituated to it and used to it. And the last thing I have to ask is if someone is doing multiple days like the Breck Epic or another stage race, like I think the Swiss Epic might be a little bit higher up. Are there any supplements, anything they can do? I mean, it sounds like from a recovery standpoint, if you're not from altitude, like you're kind of hooped if you're sleeping high and racing high, but is there anything they can do? There's probably not much you can do during the event, but actually this raises a good point. One other thing I would do to prepare, knowing you're going to be up at high altitude is especially if you're at risk of anemia, take in iron supplements. We do know with elite athletes, when they do high altitude training camps, almost all of them supplement beforehand with iron because one of the big adaptations, potential adaptations is building more red blood cells and hemoglobin. Iron is the absolute key nutrient for that. And if you are anemic or if you have low iron intake, or even if you don't, you should consider supplementing beforehand so that your body has stores and is ready to build red blood cells. So that's probably one of the key things you can prepare for, especially if it's a longer term event that may be a week long up at altitude. I would, if I had to supplement with one thing, that would be the thing. And I would do it beforehand for the two weeks beforehand leading into it, not just, oh, when I get there, I better take more iron. Awesome. Yeah. And when you're taking your iron supplement, make sure that you're eating something with vitamin C in it because I'll help the iron absorption. I have, uh, again, one more question. I keep saying one more. It was about, you mentioned teams doing high altitude training camps and then they're racing at low altitude. What has been the positive benefit of that? Because if you mentioned that they can't train as hard at altitude and they're not going to recover as well, then why should they go up there to train at all? Well, that's the uh, interesting thing about science. There are thousand and one ways to dice and slice a problem most of the athletes again that they will go up and live at altitude but they will generally train lower so the idea isn't to do your hard work up at altitude it is to again come down so most of the elite athletes who do this do have the facilities where they can be driven down to the uh, lower elevations train there and then go back up and live at high altitude. So that's a luxury maybe most of us don't have. I know even at the USOC, the US Olympic Training Center in Colorado Springs, and what Dr. Randy Wilbur has built there is he actually has an environmental chamber there that can, in a sense, not go even higher. It can go even higher, but actually it can go lower 
because in Colorado Springs, it's very hard. It's actually a really long drive to get down to <laughs> to a lower elevation. So what they have done there at USOC is build a chamber where you can actually have higher levels of oxygen so that the athletes can actually you know, do their train low part of the training in the chamber without having to spend, you know, three hours driving down the lower altitude and then training and then coming back up during the day. So that's an interesting twist on it. And one final thing I will raise about that altitude training workshop I was at at USOC is there was one case study of a runner. What he does is, I mean, he lives at Colorado Springs, but when he actually wants to train, he will go up to even higher to nine, ten thousand 10,000 feet and do his hard efforts there, which is completely backwards to this whole live high, train low. But for him, it seems to work. And it's hard to say whether that's it's because of physiology or because he's able to kind of experience, in a sense, more discomfort and work his way through that. So, but for whatever reason, it works for him. He likes that effort of going up even higher than certainly what science would recommend and going completely against the grain of live high, train low by living high and training higher, which again is bizarre, but it works for him. That's what I used to do when I lived in Colorado. And that also like weirdly worked for me. But yeah, I did see people in Boulder. Like I used to work with this company way back in the day called Fast Cat Coaching. And I saw like some of these road pros riding the trainer and then they were like hooked up to an oxygen machine and they were breathing like oxygen, more oxygen in so that they could put more Watts out. And I think this is also a good point. Somebody that lives at altitude, if they go race at sea level, they might feel amazing, but you're also going to be putting out way more Watts than you're used to. So you could blow yourself up doing that as well. Yeah, actually my PhD student, Matt Millett and I published last year, a meta-analysis on hyperoxic training and its use as an ergogenic aid. And we clearly showed that hyperoxia works and we showed that anything at sea level our partial pressure or our fraction of oxygen is around 21 percent we showed that anything above 30 percent really significantly improves performance but what you're saying is absolutely true that the big danger is the opposite we talked about if you go to altitude expecting to be able to put the same watts you're going to be disappointed and you're going to be overtrained the opposite also occurs in a hyperoxic environment. And I remember being at a conference in 97 where, again, it was the USOC and the US cycling team presenting some of the first work on hyperoxy and elite athletes. And what they had was a track cyclist. These weren't the ones going to the Olympics in 96, but they were kind of the B team, so to speak. And they tried hyperoxic training on them and showed that, oh yeah, the wattage they can put out is phenomenal. It's way higher than what they normally can. But the downside is they were also at much higher risk of overtraining and not recovering because the stress was so high. So the lesson they learned from that is they actually had to really build in much more recovery for these athletes or else they were going to just be massively overtrained because of the much higher than normal wattage they can put out. Cool. Thanks so much. I think we covered a lot of interesting topics regarding altitude. And I wish that there was a magic protocol or silver bullet that people could take to make it easier. But just learning about your body and just understanding what's happening, I think, is a, an advantage in and of itself.
Yeah, and that's part of what thrills me as a scientist, right, is really being able to push my own body to the limits and really seeing what it's possible and also seeing what kind of the human species is capable of. And that's what keeps me in science. And that's why I love this whole field of environmental physiology. Cool. Thanks so much. Thanks again for having me. Hopefully I'll be a bit more mobile next time. That's right. Maybe we'll finally go for a ride. (laughs) (laughs) Which might lead me back into an air boot. I know the way you ride and, (laughs) and my skill level on a mountain bike. I hope you guys enjoyed that episode. Basically, there's not a ton you can do if you don't already live at altitude. And I was kind of sad to hear that, but that is the reality right now. I do think the hypoxic training with the Spyro Tiger has been helpful for both Matt and I. So if you're interested in that, check out the episode that I recorded with Dr. Andrew Sellers. We talk specifically about respiratory training and using the Spyro Tiger, or you can send me an email. But I do think that knowing how to pace yourself, knowing what to do with nutrition, and just having all the information in front of you so that you can make decisions for yourself and figure out how you in particular respond to altitude is going to be the best way to get better at it. So it's hard to expect to go to your first race at altitude and then know what's going to happen. As Dr. Chung said, it's very individual. So just getting to learn your body and learn what happens can be just really beneficial for being at altitude. And if like a race like Leadville or Breck Epic is your A race, if you can get up to another race at altitude and count it as your C race, you can just use it as a learning experience with no pressure and just see how your body responds. If you're enjoying the show and it's bringing a lot of value to you, I have a Patreon account where you can throw a couple bucks a month at the show to help support my work. And that's patreon.com slash the Sonia Looney show. And it's also in the show notes. Big, big thank you to those of you who are supporting me on there. It really makes a massive difference and it helps contribute to paying my producer, Roma, and my assistant, Tina. This show is so awesome to be able to do this. And thanks so much for those of you who are helping me pay for the expenses. Another way to support the show is to leave a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. Thanks so much for being here, you guys. We have so many awesome guests coming on this summer, and I'm really pumped to share them with you. Wishing you all the best success in your training and adventures, and we'll see you back here next week.